like the sermon on Sunday morning. This is a delving in and a study of and an explication of the Word of God in a systematic way that we can't do it that way on Sunday morning because that's not what Sunday mornings are given for. It's more the preaching of the Word and the administration of the Word of God. And so this is an extremely important function in the church and in the life of believers. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for understanding and considering and making the Word of God to be so important in your life because I think that's what this shows. So let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you so much for the greatest experience of all, your presence with us and in us. Father, to us, this is the most astounding issue, the most astounding relationship, the most astounding fellowship that we can have that you this great transcendent eternal all-powerful absolute being would condescend to dwell in us father as we come together in the study of your word Father, we know that your purpose and your will is to develop this fellowship, to inform the fellowship, to mature the fellowship, and not just our fellowship with you, but the extension of that fellowship with one another. Father, surely you as a father, or one who loves all of your children equally and passionately, and you desire that we because we are your children, love one another the same way. Father, thank you for always being with us. Father, thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. Father, thank you that you always hear us. And Father, that you always answer our needs and our prayers according to your good wisdom and your great love. So Father, as we begin this study of 1 John, Father, we pray not that you teach us something because you are going to teach us things. But, Father, we pray that in the teaching we will recognize and receive and walk in what you're teaching us. Father, that we will recognize, receive, and respond to you in such a way that increasingly so our lives will be reflective personally and corporately of your presence of your goodness that the world may know that you are the Lord that they may know there is a God in heaven and he is good in Jesus name amen well this morning as we begin our study of first John we're going to go through just the first four verses and give us just a little bit of background here not spending too much time in the detail of the background but just kind of scope it out and sketch it out a little bit so we'll have a little bit of understanding of John is in the back of the Bible Patrick will show you where first John is Patrick knows that Bible back and forth so first of all first John is a letter it's one of the 21 letters of the New Testament each one of these letters written for the purpose of building up and strengthening the spiritual life of the church 
Now, how many of us know how many books are in the New Testament? How many of us know how many books? How many Gospels are there? Four. How many histories are there? One, Acts. How many letters are there? 21. How many prophecies are there? One, Revelation. So when you add four, one, 21, and one, what do you come up with? 27. Okay, I knew we could do it. And so this should be just a kind of a general thing that we know about the New Testament. The New Testament contains 27 books, four Gospels, one history, the book of Acts, 21 letters or epistles, and one prophecy or one revelation, the last book of the Bible, containing 27 altogether in the books of the New Testament. And so John, in his letter in chapter 5, verse 13, tells us why he's writing this letter. At the end of it, at the end of chapter 5, he tells the believers why he's writing it. He says, I write these things to you who believe. Now, you may remember in John the Gospel, he's writing to those that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Do you remember in the Gospel of John, he's writing and showing all of these seven signs as great signposts to say, this man, Jesus, is not just a great man, but this is literally the Son of God among us to come to pay for our sins, to rise from the dead, to send the Holy Spirit, and to bring us into fellowship with God forever. He said, so I'm writing these things to you in the, fifth, in the uh, 21st chapter of John. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may believe. Now he's writing to the church. And he's telling the church, he says, I'm writing these things to you who already believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what is one of John's great purposes? One of John's great purposes in writing this letter is that we can know. How many of us were raised in churches that said to us, you can't really know that you're saved. You can't really know. In fact, one of the issues was, if you think you know, you're arrogant. You're thinking something of yourself that you shouldn't think. And yet, in a husband and wife relationship, one of the primary needs between the man and the woman is that each one knows that they are loved by the other. Is that important to you, ladies, that you know your husband loves you? Is it important to you, men? Yes, it is. It's important. And if that knowledge isn't there, and if it isn't there not only as I know my wife loves me, but it is an increasing knowledge. It's an increasing, it's a growing thing. How many of you know today, or hopefully today, your knowledge of and your love for your wife and your husband is greater than the first day you got married? <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is the kind of knowledge, this gnosis, which is significant for John to say that. It's that knowledge through experience, this growing into who God is, coming to know Him in our salvation and growing in knowing and fellowshipping and relationship with God. So John says, I want you to know God. And it's not just, oh yeah, I'm saved, okay, I'm a Christian, thank you. It's much deeper than that. It's for those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are saved, that reading this letter, you may not only be more established in the fact of your salvation, but you may be encouraged in the growing of that knowledge of God. 
So that's what he means when he says that you may know. We need to take that word and expand it a lot more than just an intellectual knowledge of something. Yeah, I'm saved. Thank you. I know I'm saved, so I know 1 John is for me. No, it's a much deeper work. It is a growing work of relationship and fellowship and intimacy in relation to knowing God. <clears throat> the author. Now, 1 John doesn't have his name. He doesn't say, I am John. But you see, it's been the belief of the early church since the earliest times that the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is the same author of the letter. And there are many reasons for this. A lot of the reasons, and especially uh, he uses particular terminology and he uses particular reference, references in this letter that he uses in the Gospel of John. We're not going to take the time to do that. I don't think it's necessary. But uh, there are certain terms and ways of speaking and allusions that he uses in this letter that he also uses in the gospel. So we believe this is the same author. And we believe also it's the same author of the book of Revelation. The letter was probably written sometime between 85 and 90 A.D. You remember John lived a long time. Actually, what is amazing is John was older than I am. Can you imagine that? Some guy older than I am. He was older than I am. So you know that makes this guy old. He writes in about 85 and 90 A.D. He's a very old man, especially in those days. And he probably writes it from Ephesus because he was one of the elders of the church, overseers of the church. Now, why does he write this letter? What has caused this man to write this letter? Well, 1 John is a polemic. And I use that word purposely because sometimes it's good for us to grow in understanding of words. What is a polemic? Is it in your notes what it is? Does it have in parentheses a strong argument or attack against something? <clears throat> a polemic is a strong verbal or written attack. John's letter is a polemic. This is John throwing the great stones of the gospel against heresy. You know, sometimes we look at these apostles, and especially the apostle of John, because he talked about love so much, especially in this letter, and we'll see that. And, you know, and we think grace and love and kindness and goodness and gentleness and forbearance, all of these are godly qualities, and all of this is the way God treats us. And yet sometimes we feel that this is the way we should be all the time, that we should never be riled up and passionate and angry and aggressive. We should never do that. Well, it depends on the occasion. Where there is heresy, where there is something which is coming in to attack the truth and the foundation and the structure and the hope of the gospel, where there is teaching, that would tear down who Christ is and what he has done. We need to rise up in the strength and in the power of the Holy Spirit and take a hold of this and aggressively pursue attacking it with truth. Now, that doesn't mean being loud and obnoxious. That does, however, mean not being timid and so you're sitting with someone who doesn't believe in the Lord or wants to attack something about Christ which he shouldn't attack. Don't just sit there like a lollipop and take it. And now don't rise up and throw the table over and start tearing up the place like Jesus did in the temple. That's not our place either. 
but be ready to do battle in the spirit, amen? And maybe in a very quiet way. I was in the coffee shop not too long ago, and the fellow was talking to me, and I may have mentioned this before because sometimes when you get old, you mention the same thing five times in a row. And that's okay. I don't mind that. I don't apologize for it because I can't remember whether I did it or not, and I don't know what I'd be apologizing for, Alice. <laughs> so I had to be careful. And he was talking about some stuff, and he was telling me, you know, how amazing it is about, you know, the astronaut theory that we were planted here from beings out there and whatever and all that. Fine. Okay. And the great mysteries. And I said, you know, there's a much greater mystery than that. See, because this theory is an attack against truth. Do you see it? I mean, he didn't say, Jesus is not God. He didn't have to. He just gave a different philosophy or teaching of creation. Do you understand where I am? He just said something contrary to what the Word of God says. And anytime someone does that, they're attacking the truth. Don't you see? Well, it's just his opinion. It is his opinion, but it's an attack against God. And I'm, you know, I'm, I am truly, and I know you may smile about this, but I was being very sweet and quiet with him. No, 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 really, seriously. Because it wasn't the place in Starbucks to begin yelling and screaming at this man. And it wouldn't have done any good. What I mean is get ready to contend for the faith. And it may be very quietly, very gently, or it may be like, I don't know how it's going to come across. And so I shared with him the greatest mystery that he would understand. And so we went on, are you interested in what that was or not? Oh, oh, I didn't know you were interested. I asked him one question that he couldn't answer. And it was amazing. So, <clears throat> do you want to know what it was? Oh, I mean, what would you say to someone who doesn't believe in Christ? I asked him one question. Where is the body? Do you know what I mean? Where's the body of Jesus? Where is it, Lee? It ain't there no more. It's in heaven. That's a good answer. But the earthly body. Where's the earthly body? Where is it? It ain't there no more. He's risen. And so we talked about that for a little while. Oh, I never thought of that. And I said, if this is true, then everything that Jesus said about himself, about God, about eternity, about hell, and about you is absolutely true. If it isn't true, it doesn't matter what you believe. But if it is true, you need to find out. And then I said, it is true. See, because I never say if it is true and walk away. I'm not going to do that. It ain't happening. If it's true, Danny, but it is true. This is what John is after. This is a polemic. It's his passionate defense of the gospel. It's his passionate defense of the gospel. He's defending it against false teachers who are attempting to plant the seeds of heresy in the soil of the church. Remember in Genesis 3.18, thorns and thistles are going to rise up in this world. And in the church, we're going to always get the thorns and thistles of false teachers. Remember in Matthew 13, 25, you're going to get the wheat and the tares mixed in to the planting. That's going to happen. 
How many of you know that when you do a garden, there are weeds in the garden? Anybody have weeds in their garden? You know they're going to get there. And so this is going to happen in the church. They're going to be contrary teachings or doctrines contrary to the Word of God in the church. They're going to either come from inside the church or outside. The more dangerous ones are those that come from within the church. Paul tells the elders in Acts 20 that. You're going to get attacked. You're going to get false teachers from the outside and those even among you. And this is one of the reasons somebody says to me not too long ago, why, because I was talking to someone who was teaching a Bible study that uh, the leadership is not involved in, and the person said, why are you so concerned? And I said, do you have children? Yes. I said, do they go to school? Yes. I said, when they come home from school, do you ask them what? What did the teacher say? And now let's say the teacher in your little girl's class and your girl is sixth grade is teaching them reproduction and condoms and stuff like that how many of you would be okay with that how many of you would really want to know that's happening and question the school anybody here want to question that it matters it matters to us what's happening in your life and what you're learning and what's being taught why because you're the family of God. It matters to us. People get upset. Why, man, he's, he's nosy. We're going to be nosy for the purpose of the gospel. Now, some of us are going to be more nosy than others. What? Good. Some of us are going to be nosier than others. But brothers and sisters in Christ, as long as we are appointed by God to be leaders of the church, we are going to defend the gospel. Can you say amen? amen? And can you say amen when we have to talk to you or deal with something in your life that is an attack against the integrity of the name of God in your life? Can you say amen to that? Good. I'm coming to get you. <laughs> you see, Paul was ready John is ready. Peter is ready. These men are ready to dig up the seeds of heresy in the church. We need to be like that. But not in a fleshly, obnoxious way, but in a spiritually discerning and led by the Spirit way. That doesn't always mean you do it a particular way. It means that you do it the way the Holy Spirit leads you to do it. So this particular heresy of John's day was called Gnosticism. It has to do with knowledge, to know. Remember that you may know that you have eternal life in chapter 5, verse 13. It's the same word, to know, by experience. There was a thing beginning in the church in those days. It was just an early form of Gnosticism that developed a lot more in the next century. And it was talking about being able to transcend this evil material world that is so bad and get into the real spiritual world and how do you do that how do we get away from this material hateful nasty bad world <clears throat> and get into the spirit well it's through personal knowledge and mystery you know all of those things and so and we can by doing that transcend and it was coming into the church and it was being taught in the, the church in the church the Gnostics taught one of two basic things about the person of Christ. And let me say this before I get into that. Every heresy, may I repeat what I just said? Every heresy, may I say it one more time? What did I just say, Perry? Every heresy has to do 
with the person and work of Christ. Every heresy has to do with the person and work of Christ. It's not heretical if you believe that we should teach that women should wear head coverings and we don't do it that way. That's not heresy. It's not heresy for a lot of, but it's heresy when the teaching begins to touch the truth of Christ and his work. The work of the atonement, the person of Christ. That's where all heresy is directed. It may begin somewhere, but the goal is the very person and work of Christ in the incarnation. So the Gnostics taught one of two things, and I need to move along. <clears throat> Jesus was not a human. He was not really human. I mean, can you imagine the disgusting thing that a God would take on filthy flesh? That's crazy. This is one of the big problems with Islam. God would take on flesh? That's crazy. Well, of course it is to them because they don't know the truth. So that would be one heresy teaching. The other heresy is at the end, the Christ spirit inhabited Jesus but departed at the crucifixion. That Jesus had the Christ spirit in him, but when Jesus was crucified, the Christ spirit withdrew. And you may hear teachings and groups talking about the Christ spirit. We're not talking about the spirit of Christ as the Bible teaches it, but when they begin to talk about the Christ spirit, let your ears go up and your antennas go up and to say, this might be a heresy. It sounds good, the Christ spirit. But the Bible calls it the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is the Bible's terminology. So the defense of the gospel. John knew that the integrity of the gospel was at stake, and the only remedy for this was the truth. Remember John 8, 31 to 32. Jesus said, abide in my word if you abide. What does abide mean? Hang around and stay there, live. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then you will what? Know that gnosis, you see? Then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. When we quote that scripture, it's a wonderful scripture. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's not the truth unless you put the first part of Jesus' statement in it. You see, it's not the truth to say, if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. That's not the truth. Yeah, I shared that one time with a little pastor, and he was out there, and he said, well, you know, the Bible says you should, uh, you know, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. I said, that's not in the Bible. Oh, yes. I said, it's not in the Bible. Man, he opened his Bible. His little fingers were moving as fast as lightning. Cha, 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 cha. And he showed me, and he turned to John, um, James, what, 4, 7, and I said, read it to me. He says, therefore, submit. There was a phrase before, resist. It says what? Submit to God. Oh, man, I thought the man was teaching heresy when he says you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It's not the truth unless we have the whole truth. Don't you see? If you abide in me and my what? Words. Words. What does it mean? Study, reading, contemplating, staying around, thinking about, being saturated by, obeying. Then you will know the truth. It's a growing relational thing. And that truth is making you free from the enslavement of sin, the passions of your flesh, the ways of the world, being controlled by any and everything other than the Holy Spirit. You will be truly what? Free people. Not free to do what you want, but free from doing what you want in the flesh so that you will do what you want in the Spirit by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, 1 John is really a defense of the gospel, which is God's only means of redeeming the gospel. So here is something about the gospel. John is a defense of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's God's only means of redeeming his rebellious people through the death of his son for the forgiveness of their sin received by faith so that they could become his children and join eternal life with him in the new heaven and new earth. That's just a statement of what the gospel is. We can say the gospel many different ways, but the central issue is we must know what the gospel is. The gospel is God's good news that he has sent his son to die for our sin and save us from the wrath of God to come to give us eternal life by giving us the Holy Spirit, declaring us not guilty, giving us the righteousness of Christ so that we are declared God's children forever. Amen? That's the gospel. So John, you see, is explicit, and he's direct and explicit in his denunciation of, of these who would pervert the gospel. Look what he calls them. He calls them antichrists. He calls them false prophets. He calls them deceivers, and he calls them what? liars why liar remember what john 8:44 jesus said in john 8:44 talking to the pharisees he says you are of your father the devil and he is a or was a what liar from the beginning the father of lies all lies proceed from the enemy so john's not going to mince words he's going to call you you're a liar you see, I think sometimes when we read these things, we say, well, this isn't grace. It sometimes is grace to call someone a liar. I told you a friend of mine, Harvey Cooper, witnessed for years to a man, a friend of his, Johnny Delhammer, for years. And so Harvey left Johnny's house one day, and Johnny was stubbornly resisting the gospel. So Harvey walked out. Walked down the path to his car. Johnny's standing at the front door. All of a sudden, Harvey turned around and said, Johnny, you're going to hell! All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit slammed into him. And God, that was God's way of getting his attention. And Johnny got saved. Oh, we would say, oh, brother, that's not grace. Grace can be very violent sometimes. Remember Jesus in John 2 tearing those folks up in the temple. Remember the cross, the violence of grace and the gentleness of grace. It depends on what God is doing in his defense of the gospel truth and in the administration of this truth. So let's be careful of how we understand all of these terms and all of it is, however, remember, within the context of God's will and for his purpose. Since the attack is on, along the lines of the person and work of Christ, which is the epicenter of all heresy, John responds by explaining God's character and his identity and his ministry. And that's how he does this. And he also gives us three tests for genuine faith. And we're going to see this. Here are three tests he's going to give us a genuine faith. A doctrinal test, what we believe about Jesus and his work. <clears throat> there's going to be a moral test, how I walk in obedience to God's will. And he's giving us a relational test, how we love God and the brethren. So let me in the last few minutes, let's turn to the verses and look at these four verses. Verses 1 through 4, introduction. 
John is introducing what's going on. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, John knows that for the gospel to be the good news of our salvation, Jesus had to be both human and divine at the same time. And that's what he says in these verses. Now, you may not have caught it, but that's what he's saying. Remember first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, for God was in Christ reconciling the world, sorry, himself to the world. God was in Christ. So in order for the gospel to be truth, we must start at least on this level of what we understand in our humanity, that this man, Jesus, is both human and divine. Now, what is this called, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus together? What is this called? The incarnation. It means the enfleshment. Carnal means flesh. The enfleshment. Jesus has to be both human and divine at the same time, fully human, fully divine in one person. How does it work? I don't know. But he has to be that way in order for us to have eternal life. Jesus' humanity. John says, I'm going to show you two things about Jesus that are essential. Remember, the Gnostics uh, denied this. Remember how we started. The Gnostics said, no, he's not really divine. So John begins right in the beginning. Let me introduce this by saying Jesus is divine. How do you know he was? Because we have seen him, we have heard him, we've looked upon him. You know, we were there. This is a real man. John begins with this personal testimony that Jesus was a real person and he wasn't a phantom. Listen to what he says in verse 1. We have what? Heard. We have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon and we have touched with our hands. This is a real man. Jesus is a real man. <clears throat> the incarnation began when? When the Holy Spirit inseminated Mary. Remember? That's when the incarnation began. When does it end? Never. Never ends. There is an eternal man on the throne of God, the man Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 15. Once the incarnation began with Mary's conception, it will never end. There is a heavenly man ever interceding for us before the throne of God. And that's extremely significant, which we don't have time for today. Secondly, Jesus' divinity. <clears throat> in the same verses, having said something about his humanity, at the same time he's saying something about his divinity. And he mixes it up. You notice he interweaves both. He doesn't say Jesus is human and divine. He mixes both together. Having established the fact of Jesus' genuine humanity, John proceeds to show that this man, they have, this man whom they have heard and looked upon and touched is none other than the pre-existent 
and divine Son of God. Jesus did not become the Son of God when he was born into the world. He is pre-existent, meaning he was here before as the Son of God. He was conceived in Mary, pre-existent. He was here when? From the beginning. So what does he say? Jesus first is eternal. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Where have you heard that word, the beginning? Two other places. What does Genesis say? In the beginning. What does John 1 say? In the beginning. The word, the beginning, in the word, in the beginning, this is a, an idiomatic phrase which means that it's always been there. It's just one of those phrases that we have to use with our terminology that we're locked in time, that we can't have terminology that extends beyond time. You know, we're locked in a time frame. And so certain terminology just means something different than what it looks like it means. In the beginning, that means it ever was. <clears throat> John is saying that which was in the beginning. What was in the beginning? Well, he's going to show us. What do you mean that? Who? Well, that which has been eternal. That's what that word means, eternal. Always existing, never beginning, uncreated, eternal. And so he says five things. First, Jesus is eternal. Secondly, Jesus is the Word. You see in verse 1, he's the Word. That's the word logos. That means the Word of God. When I, can, how many of you can hear me? How many of you, what are you hearing right now? You're hearing what? Words. Now, when I speak a word, is that word part of who I am, a verbal expression of who I am, or am I speaking the word a verbal expression of Bertus? When I speak a word, whom am I expressing? Myself. And so the word is the expression verbally of the person who is speaking. And then when I speak a word, how many of you can speak a word Kenneth, stand up a second. Go ahead, it's okay. Everybody knows the ministry of Kenneth Belton, friends. There he is. Now, I want you to say this. Jesus loves me, but without breathing. No, 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 really. Don't take a breath. Don't, don't let any breath come out of your mouth. Say, Jesus loves me without breathing. Say it. Come on, say it. What's the matter? Because you see, thank you. You see, when we speak, a word comes out, and the word comes out on the breath. The breath of God, the Holy Spirit. The word of God. God himself. All three are the same. Can you say amen? amen. How many of you can speak, at least audibly, without breathing? None of us. When you look at Genesis 1-1, you'll see that. Jesus is the life, verse 1. Verse, uh, verse 2, Jesus is with the Father. Uh-oh, something has just changed here. Jesus ain't alone. Something is going on here. Jesus has always been from eternity, and there's somebody else with him. Jesus is the Son of the Father. Ooh, wow, what is going on here? 
See, John is teaching some very deep things here that we may not be aware of. You see, notice the close connection between what John says here and in John 1.1. So what does John 1.1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, with the Father, with God, and the Word was God. He's saying essentially the same thing here. He's saying essentially what Genesis 1, 1 through 3 says, except we may not see it unless we take it through Christian eyes and Holy Spirit-inspired eyes and see all three persons of the Trinity in those three verses. You see, everything hinges, everything of the gospel and our hope hinges on one fact, the fact of the incarnation, that Jesus, divinity, and humanity come together in one man. Let me go through this quickly. Only as a result of the incarnation is the nature and character of God is revealed. Is God's wrath propitiated at the cross? Only because of the incarnation are the works of the devil destroyed. Is sin's authority forever broken? Does the resurrection occur? <clears throat> is eternal life given? Only because of the incarnation and the basis of the incarnation and through the incarnation can we enjoy fellowship with God. Can we receive the Holy Spirit who establishes the church so that Jesus will return and triumph for his church and there will be a new heaven and new earth. All of this is dependent upon the incarnation and is a result of the incarnation. So everything we have is a result of what? And dependent upon and a function of the incarnation. In this one man, the full humanity and the full divinity coming into one man. Paul talked about this. I won't read it in 1 Corinthians 1, 15 to 19. You might want to take occasion to read that, those verses. Talk about who Christ is. Colossians 1, 15 to 19. That's what I said. You just thought I said Corinthians. <clears throat> I'm just seeing if you're awake, brother. In verse 3... John tells us his purpose. Why is he writing? So that you too may have fellowship with us. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't start off fellowship with God? He starts off fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, fellowship is the word koinonia. Fellowship with God is God's great goal in the gospel why did Jesus die so we could have fellowship with God why did Jesus die so that he, we could have the fellowship that we have with God with one another Jesus died for God's greatest desire that we would have fellowship with him forever you see, this is attained by those who were far off and brought close by the blood of Jesus. It's only through the cross that we have fellowship with God. Everyone who says they have fellowship with God and they know God and they understand God and they are not in Christ, they are either deceived or they are liars. Do not be taken in with anyone who is spiritual and who says, I know God and I understand God, and I walk with God, if they're not in Christ, if they're not a believer, if they're not saved, if they don't have the Holy Spirit, don't be taken in by them. Amen? They may look this, they may sound this, they may whatever this, 
but it's all a veneer unless Christ himself lives in them by his Holy Spirit. Don't believe it. This is what John is fighting against, and this is what the Bible is fighting against in one of the categories. We're going to come against all kinds of people and hear all kinds of folks, especially today, the world, and especially in this country. I don't know much about the other countries of the world, but in this country, spiritualism is so much more popular, spiritual things, right? How many things on TV you see get your inner self and develop this? And it is a proliferation of spiritual things. And you listen to some of this, and some of this oh, it sounds great, and these people, you know, if it's not anchored in the result of and fused by and for the purpose of the gospel, it's a lie. Amen? Be narrow-minded because Jesus says narrow is the way that leads to life and wide is the way that leads to destruction and a whole lot of folks are going down the wide path. So I am a narrow-minded person. I have been brainwashed, and I'm now a racist in the race of Jesus Christ. I am a narrow-minded, brainwashed racist, and so are you in Christ. Now, sometimes you have to say some of that real quickly and explain certain categories with certain people, but that's who we are. That's who we are. I'm of the new race, the new humanity. I've been born out of the old one. I'm you know, a segregationist. The Bible says, come out from among them, right? I'm all those words that the world hates, and so are you. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? You see, such a fellowship, this kind of fellowship, is where the joy of God is displayed. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When he says, our joy... What he means by this is our joy is the personal joy of God that he has within himself, about himself, that he gives to us. The very personal joy, peace, satisfaction, the very personal joy and peace and satisfaction that God has within himself, about himself, is his gift to us in Christ. Can you imagine that? So listen to this word. Jesus is praying. In John 15, 11, he tells him something. And then John, the rest of the verse is part from the prayer, John 17, 13. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So the joy that we experience in our Christian life is whose joy? It's the expression of God's joy over us that we are experiencing and he has given us his own joy so Jesus said in John 17 13 that they may have he's praying to the father that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves it's an incredible thing I'm going to recommend a couple of things there's a study which says let's study first John we can order them for you if you like if you want to get one of these just let us know let's study first John it's a, a little smaller than this. I forgot my copy at home. It's a delightful way of studying 1 John. Let's study 1 John. Wonderful study book. And then another one, and I'm going to be taking a lot of my emphasis from one of the 
most profound and wonderful books that I have ever read. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. Evan May can get it for you if you don't know. All you need to know is the name, Delighting in the Trinity. Let me encourage you to read this book. It is going to minister to you in a wonderful way. Delighting in the Trinity. You will love this book. And you know, I don't promote many books, but this is one that I will. Next week, we're going to talk about the single most significant and fundamental truth about God that there is. We're going to continue with these verses next week and go into uh, you know, these four verses. And from these verses this week, we're going to go into a different, uh, same category, but in a deeper way. We're going to talk about the single most profound, significant, fundamental truth there is about God and hope to see you next week and encourage others to come back. Thank you so much for being here.